I'm Andrew Ramsamy, and this is the Global Sport Matters Podcast. Before we start the show today, just wanted to let you know that our next Global Sport Matters live event will be on Thursday, November 19th at 11 a.m. Arizona time, 1 p.m. Eastern. On that day, we will be talking about the state of mental health in sport. Joining us that day will be Rebecca Mira, professional track runner and campaign manager, Dr. Megan Roche, ultramarathon runner and co-author of The Happy Runner, Dr. Ian Pickup, Pro Vice Chancellor and COO at the University of East London, and Amber Cargill, Director of Wellness at the National Football League Players Association. To learn more about the event and to sign up, be sure to visit our website at globalsportmatters.com and look for the events section. And now, our show. Over the last few decades, Phoenix, Arizona has established itself as one of the best sports cities in the United States. It's the home to multiple professional teams, including the Cardinals, the Suns, the Diamondbacks, the Coyotes, and the Mercury. And during the spring, it's even home to Major League Baseball. It's also the home to several upcoming sporting events, including Super Bowl 57 and the men's and women's NCAA Final Four tournaments. Every year, hundreds, if not thousands, of sports tourists flock to this city. And as we all know, this hasn't been a typical year. As COVID-19 cases continue to rise, Phoenix sports arenas and facilities remain empty. On today's Global Sport Matters podcast, we're joined by Matthew Casey, a reporter with local radio station KJZZ, which is investigating the impact of sports and COVID-19 on Phoenix culture and economy. Matthew will talk to us about his new podcast series, Empty Seats, a KJZZ original production. I'm Andrew Ramsamy, and this is the Global Sport Matters podcast. So joining me now is Matthew Casey. Matthew is a reporter with KJZZ, our local NPR station here in Phoenix. And all day I've been wanting to call him Mark Casey because many, many moons ago, uh, I used to work with his dad back at Channel 12 when I would do news promotions. So I, I made the connection and did realize that, yes, Matthew, you are the son of Mark. So it, it seems very biblical in some way or some fashion to say it that way. But Matthew Casey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here. So, Matthew, you're working on a podcast uh, right now for KJZZ called Empty Seats, and I uh, happen to hear it because I'm a, a listener uh, of KJZZ um, talking about about this podcast and just kind of what has happened here in the Valley. Tell us a little bit about what is Empty Seats. So it's about the pandemic versus a sports capital, which, as you know, the Valley of the Sun truly is. Um, I have six episodes that are going to be available wherever you get your podcasts and on KJZZ.org. Uh, the first two are about history. How did we get huge events like spring training that draw tourism? How did we become home to pro teams from all the major sports? The middle episodes are about the local effect of the sports industry crashing as COVID invaded our lives, uh, the people, businesses, and places hurt by it being unsafe for crowds at games, uh, then I look at what has to happen for sports to return to the way they were, and if legalized betting on games could help make up for what's been lost economically. 
And so many cities vie to become these, you know, super sport complex to homes for for different uh, various sporting events, you know, like baseball, basketball, football, hockey. I mean, for crying out loud, we even have uh, NASCAR and a, a major golf tournament here in Phoenix. Uh, in your reporting and, and what you've done, what makes Phoenix such an ideal or perhaps not so ideal place to have so many sports to be in one city? Is it as easy to say that it's the weather? <laughs> uh, I do think that climate is a starting point, right? Like an elevator pitch. Um, it gets our foot in the door to host events like college football national championship games and to become the home for a hockey team from Winnipeg where the average high temperature this month is right around freezing. Uh, but beyond the weather, though, my belief is that we're attractive because our leaders have been willing to work with league executives and owners to make a home for sports here. We have long running relationships. You know, th these are important. Uh, another aspect is that we've hosted so many different kinds of mega events for so long that we have a reputation for doing it well. Um, and part of, what my, part of what maintains our status as an ideal place for sports are state-of-the-art facilities built with at least some public money. Uh, these aren't one-time one investments, though. They require upgrades to remain state-of-the-art. And I've always wondered how much is too much. So, like, let's take State Farm Stadium, for example. It costs less than half a billion dollars and is scheduled to host its third Super Bowl in a couple years. But then after that, it's going to have to compete for more against brand new multi-billion dollar stadiums in Los Angeles and in Las Vegas. And State Farm Stadium, for those that don't know, is where the Arizona Cardinals play. It is on the west side of town uh, in, in a place called Glendale. Uh, and that side of town, Glendale, has just seen a, a huge explosion of of what we have described or what has been described as urban sprawl, right? The kind of uh, spreading out from the the core of Phoenix out into the suburbs. Um, but to your to your point, you know, how much money is too much money when taxpayer dollars are are being required to build these stadiums, and then these stadiums are effectively themselves businesses unto themselves, not only tied to the sports teams that they have in there, but then various other events that do come through. Uh, which Glendale, you know, has seen a lot of entertainment come through, you know, as well as, you know, kind of other events that use that facility. Does the do the cities get that money back? Uh, do, no, I'm not that I'm aware of. I mean, Glendale owns Glendale is the owner of Gila River Arena next door to State Farm Stadium, right? The home of the Coyotes. Um, and they pay uh, a company to manage it. Um, I believe their hope would be to make money off it someday. I don't I don't think that they do right now. Um, State Farm Stadium, uh, you know, I, it's owned by the state. It's owned by the State Tourism um, and Sports Authority. No, excuse me, Sports and Tourism Authority. I said that backwards. No, I didn't. Um, the State Tourism and Sports Authority. Anyway, um, it, you know, I, I don't know, Andrew. That's a great question. I, I don't think that Glendale makes any money off it. I remember the last time they hosted a Super Bowl, they, they lost money on public safety, um, and they tried to get a boost from the state to help pay for that. Um, but these investments are, you know, Glendale made a huge – and Glendale did not pay for State Farm Stadium, to be clear. You know, that was paid for through Prop, two, Prop 302, uh, a hospitality tax. Um, it did pay for Gila River Arena. Um, it's still paying for it. And, you know, these are huge investments. I think to get back to your question about how much is too much, um, 
You know, I, I don't have an answer for that. I, I think that, you know, the public in recent years and, and going back, you know, back to when we weren't a big sports town has tried to take stands against, you know, a lot of public money going into these venues. And it's always a fight. Um, and, you know, they've all been built anyway. Um, some have failed, you know, some attempts have failed over the years, but, you know, we have, you know, two major arenas, one in downtown Phoenix, one in Glendale. We have two big stadiums, one in downtown Phoenix, one in Glendale, and they were all built with public money, at least some. Not, I mean, you know, the teams kick in some, they say they kick in some, but, you know, a big chunk of it is coming from public, from the public. And one of the things about Phoenix uh, that I love is being able to go and attend spring training games. Um, and, and I, my son, did earlier this year. And, and matter of fact, one of the games that we were planning on attending uh, ultimately ended up being canceled as a result of COVID-19. Can you talk a little bit about how baseball and how Arizona became home to one of the spring training uh, kind of groups and leagues that, that is here? Well, I read in the in a Global Sport Institute article that the Cleveland baseball team came here in the 1940s after a racial incident in Jim Crow, Florida, right? Cleveland was the first American League team to sign a black player. Uh, Cleveland was then joined by the New York Giants, then New York Giants, whose owner put them up at the Buckhorn Motel in Mesa, which I was fortunate to be able to visit for empty seats. Um, jumping way ahead to the, th- to the 2000s when I moved here, uh, Cactus League games had a very laid-back feel, right? Um, I think the experience has become a lot more commercial. One source told me during this project that part of the reason was that Arizona became a spring break destination. I think the other part was just the monetization of every aspect of sports that's gone on in recent decades. You know, Major League Baseball teams wanted to turn spring training into a moneymaker, and they wanted better facilities. Cities in Metro Phoenix have been on board with that for the most part, um, and a lot of public money has has gone to new stadiums and renovations of old ones. You know, given all that, though, I'm still told that it's cheaper for a Dodgers fan or a Giants fan to go to a spring training game here than it is for them to see a regular season game back home in California. And, you know, you can still find screaming deals on tickets to many of the West Side ballparks. Uh, My buddy and I saw the then defending Cubs play the Brewers in Maryville for like 11 bucks a couple years ago. And Arizona is known for its retirees. It's a place that, you know, a lot of people come to. Um, to kind of live out their final days. And I noticed that a lot of the ushers and ticket takers are of that age. Um, and, and and especially during spring training, when you see them, you know, at, at the stadiums uh, across the valley, um, you know, helping partake in, in, in the games. How dependent is, is Phoenix and the Phoenix sport community on that retiree community to kind of be the backbone for being ushers and ticket takers at these events? You know, Andrew, that is a great observation. I've seen it too. Uh, There's a particular section that a buddy and I like to sit in for Diamondbacks games, and the usher there has been the same older gentleman for years. And your question makes me really miss talking to him. Um, I did not interview retired people who work at sports venues for my project, but if I were going to dig into this, I'd want to learn how many are employees and how many are volunteers. So my hunch is that most of the retirees that we see working at Cactus League games are probably volunteers, while people like the Diamondbacks usher that I mentioned are likely contract employees. Um, 
working on empty seats has given me a better understanding of the level of support staff needed to host just one game, right? So some people told me it was hundreds of people. Others have said it was thousands. So based on this, I would think that these retirees are extremely crucial to sports in our community. And we know that teams and sports complexes have been hard hit by the pandemic. Um, and I'm sure we have yet to see the ripples of, of what you described earlier, which are these um, taxes that are, as a result, these hospitality taxes, three, two, these hospitality taxes, which are as a result of what we call beds and heads, right? So when people uh, rent a room or um, uh, stay at a hotel, that tax goes directly back to fund a lot of these sports-related initiatives. Could you talk about some of the ripple effects that Phoenix is beginning to see as a result of the impact of the impact of COVID-19 and particularly within the sports community? Okay. Well, uh, the people, I'll just borrow the words used by a, a former concessions manager that I've gotten to know. It's devastating. You know, he switched from restaurant to stadium work to set himself up for a major career change. He wanted upward mobility. And this strategy was working well for him. Now he's trying to live off of $117 a week. For businesses near the sports venues, it's brutal too. I mean, think about owning a restaurant and a bar at Westgate, right? Right next door to State Farm Stadium and Gila River Arena. Right now should be money in the bank. Crowds for Cardinals games, crowds for Coyotes games. The holidays are coming up. Uh, one of the points that I hope to show listeners in my project was that where we live is such a big sports town that as the teams and complexes go, so do a lot of the businesses here. Now, as far as revenue streams, I, I haven't pulled uh, uh, state data on tourism, but one of the things that I was told is that to know what that's going to look like, you need look no further than the traffic at Sky Harbor. And we all know that Sky Harbor has seen a huge dip in travelers. And so, you know, the pandemic makes travel scary. It makes it potentially dangerous. Um, and if you lost your job or if you're making a lot less, you know, that's going to be a vacation is going to be one of the first things that you cut out. So, you know, um, as far as the money that's flowing into the state, uh, the state, the Arizona State Board of. Uh, wow. As far as the money that's flowing into state coffers, I, I don't know. You know, I don't I can't give you a dollar amount how much things have gone up or down. But I mean, just the nature of what the pandemic means tells us that, you know, these types of activities are going to be a lot harder for people. And then in the midst of the pandemic, right, the Diamondbacks have been talking about looking for a new home. Uh, the Suns are about to embark on a huge renovation project. I'm sure a lot of taxpayer dollars are going to be involved in all of this. But what is the long term future for a city like Phoenix with so much of its kind of success? hinged on on sports well the, the future is unclear given the pandemic and as you mentioned the diamondbacks dissatisfaction with chase field but i still think like the cost for a new baseball stadium it, it's just enormous you know look at globe life stadium in texas where the world series was played that thing cost more than a billion with a b dollars it has a retractable roof what we need here right in the desert and all the bells and whistles of a modern ballpark the grand opening was spoiled by COVID. I really don't see that kind of public funding happening here anytime soon. And we talked a little bit about Prop 302. That goes on for another decade. 
So there's already a hospitality tax being used, and it's the sort of go-to, that's been the sort of go-to method for publicly funding sports venues here. Um, you know, people have talked about the, the D-backs potentially going, partnering with one of the tribes on a new stadium away from downtown. I think the, pandem- the pandemic makes that really uh, much tougher to do. For me, the wild card in the D-back scenario could be Las Vegas, would be Las Vegas. I mean, it's made big moves to build its own sports capital. They now have a pro hockey team. They've got the Raiders. Why not baseball? Uh, for the Suns, my understanding is that the renovations are ahead of schedule and almost done. And I'm sure, you know, I watched the Suns in the bubble. I'm sure you did too. That was really exciting and a lot of fun. And I think everyone here hopes it's a sign of things to come. Um, when the arena renovations are done, if the venue has to sit empty or mostly empty because of COVID, the city's chance to benefit from revived excitement for the Suns could be lost. We had done a poll asking fans as to whether or not they would actually want to return to a sporting event. And the, the question was, uh, was phrased, if, if you had been given a free ticket to attend the World Series, would you go? And almost half of our audience uh, that was polled said no, they had no interest in going, but half did. And, and we're beginning to see a little bit of loosening around certain sports. Uh, I mean, we just uh, uh, saw and we'll see. Um, I think the Cardinals had 1,700 tickets that they allowed uh, at their last game. And then these upcoming two games, which will be home games, there will be 4,000 people in attendance at each game. So what, what are you hearing from fans and, and what, are the, what are their thoughts about returning to, to sport? Well, I, th- I think it's a personal decision, right? You know, um, how, how afraid are you of, of COVID and, you know, what kind of, uh, what kind of potential health conditions might you have that could complicate matters if you get COVID? Um, you know, to, it, you know, teams can say the, the, the state health department, for instance, has not set standards for when venues can go back to full capacity. And I think even if they do, it's really going to come down to individual levels of comfort. So, you know, 50 percent of your people in your survey said, yeah, I'd be comfortable. 50 percent said no. For me personally, I mean, I, I go to I go to a lot of college football games. I usually go to spring training every year. I go to a lot of Diamondbacks games. And when I think about, you know, the process of doing that, you know, you, you park, you walk in a crowd, you wait in line in a long line to go through security and show your ticket. And then you go up and. And a lot of the seats in the venues are, 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 are tight because, you know, they want to get as many folks in there as they can. I, you know, the Territorial Cup games coming up next month, I would love to go. Would I actually do it? I, I, I don't know, man. I, I'd really have to think about that long and hard. Well, Matthew, I mean, it, the, like you're saying, the future remains to be seen on so many different variables from how teams and sports complexes are going to be able to survive the pandemic how fans are kind of feeling about whether or not they themselves are going to return to the stands. Um, and then ultimately, I mean, uh, as we record this right now, uh, it is the day before the election. Um, so I'm sure that'll play into a lot of this as well too. So um, with that, I want to thank you. And, and, and what we're going to do is actually leave folks with uh, one of the episodes from empty seats. You can find empty seats uh, like Matthew said, wherever you listen to, uh, to your podcast or go to kjzz.org. 
So Matthew Casey, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Once again, that was Matthew Casey, local reporter with KJZZ. And now here is the first episode from his podcast series, Empty Seats, which is a KJZZ original production. The most played video game on my iPad is called SimCity Build It. A key object to the game is to grow your population. And I've slowly built my make-believe metropolis into a home for more than 1.2 million people. I mean Sims. They live in pixeled homes like this one. There are different ways to grow the population. But I had to start with basics. Sims just won't live in a city without core services like electricity, running water, firefighters, or police. Sims also want to live near parks, schools, and transportation hubs. Next comes community development, building a culture to connect residents and create a city identity. Options like constructing beach or mountainside attractions, tourist landmarks, music amphitheaters, and even sports venues can grow your sim population in bunches. I love sports, so my city has a hockey arena, plus stadiums for beach volleyball, soccer, football, and baseball. When the coronavirus stopped all the real games, it was comforting to play this video game and hear the sim crowds inside my stadiums roar. Here in the real world, you can go to just about every kind of athletic event there is in Metro Phoenix. In fact, our city makes my sim sports town look like a backwater. We have 19 venues spread across the Valley of the Sun. And they're a key component of leisure and hospitality, a huge part of Arizona's economy. Even though games have resumed, the pandemic means it's not safe for most tourists, local fans, or me to fill the seats. From KJZZ Original Productions, I'm Matthew Casey, and this is Empty Seats, a podcast about the pandemic versus a sports capital. Metro Phoenix was in the middle of hosting its exclusive yearly sports bonanza when COVID-19 put a sudden stop to all games and competitions. Arizonans lost their jobs, canceled events left local businesses teetering on the edge, and fans were exiled from our venues. How long will the seats stay empty? Could legalized sports betting help the state bounce back? Chapter 1 explores how we grew our own yearly big money events that are part of an industry worth tens of billions of dollars when it crashed. The Fiesta Bowl and Cactus League are huge draws for out-of-towners. So is the Avondale Racetrack that has been carved into one of NASCAR's crown jewels. And our golf tournament, started nearly a century ago to make Phoenix a tourist destination, offers guests a raucous experience they just can't get anywhere else. In the 1930s, the Phoenix Chamber of Commerce grew more active as a tourism bureau. It needed a special events committee to work on breaking new ground, and five young executives were chosen. The chamber soon proposed that the group grow their membership, and the Thunderbirds were born. Bob Goldwater Sr. was an early member, and he took on the task to revive the Phoenix Open Golf Tournament, which became the first of four events that have helped make the Valley a destination for sports fans. Thunderbirds Charities is still the public face of the event that routinely draws hundreds of thousands of people. There you go. 
It's a hot Saturday night at Top Golf in Scottsdale. I'm taking turns hitting balls with Mark Stewart, John Washington, and John's wife. The men hadn't seen each other for years. About a decade ago, they sued the city for spending millions of taxpayer dollars to renovate TPC Scottsdale. Its golf courses, located north of here, are where the Phoenix Open has been played since the 1980s. There's no reason for private businesses to be ripping off the public. There's no reason for the public to be engaged in private business. Mark Stewart's fight with Scottsdale is over the city's relationship with the Professional Golfers Association of America, or PGA, which controls TPC Scottsdale through a city lease. The PGA Tour is some of the wealthiest individuals in the United States. Court documents filed by the city say paying for improvements was to protect against a real chance that the PGA could move the Phoenix Open away from TPC Scottsdale. If that were to happen, staff told the city council, the cost of lost TV exposure and course revenue would be even more than the renovations. Mark does not agree with the city's math. And I hope the lease will be redone and it'll be done so that the city gets paid as the owner. Mark calls the case a public interest lawsuit. Washington dropped out after they lost in Maricopa County Superior Court. Mark appealed, and he hopes for a different ruling next year. Uh, how much have I spent on this? About 300000 Mark spent this money to take on the better-financed city of Scottsdale, which has the powerful PGA running its golf course, where there's a yearly fan-favorite tournament that's helped make Metro Phoenix a sports destination that most athletic aficionados can't visit because of the pandemic. If you give up, you're, you're just giving up to the bad guys and you're making society a worse place. Deals that give public money to sports venues are common in the Valley. They cause legal fights like Mark's, controversy, and heated debate. The public questions cash and incentives for wealthy team owners. Leaders back them to protect and add to our big league attractions. Well, we're glad that you uh, came out to take a look at one of the most iconic properties, uh, I think, in uh, the entire state of Arizona. That's the Buckhorn Baths. I'm in Mesa, at an old motel where hot springs come out of a fissure hundreds of feet below ground. The president of the Mesa Preservation Foundation, Vic Linoff, is my masked tour guide. But even more, the buckhorn uh, often is considered to be uh, a major player in the start of the Cactus League. The Cactus League is the official name for spring training baseball in Arizona. In 2018, the roughly month-long valley-wide event drew 1.7 million fans. But in the 1940s, only one major league franchise used Arizona to get ready for the season. Horace Stoneham, who owned the New York Giants, had a home out in Paradise Valley. And he was good friends with Bill Vick, who owned the Cleveland Indians and trained in Tucson. The two were talking, Vic explained, and Horace confided that he didn't want to leave Arizona during springtime. Bill suggested he bring the Giants here, and their teams could play each other. Horace knew of the Buckhorn Baths, having used them himself. And it was more than baths, it was really a spa, you got rubdowns, all of that sort of thing. The Buckhorn became the center of the Giants' spring training operation for years. After the property closed, the Mesa Preservation Foundation went through it and found dozens of boxes filled with souvenirs given to the Sliger family who owned the Buckhorn. First time you discover it, you go, wow, look at this. You got a Willie Mays ball signed and you know, all these other baseball players. The Buckhorn Baths drew Hollywood types too. 
There are even unconfirmed stories that Elvis Presley visited while making a movie in Arizona, and that President John F. Kennedy may have used the hot spring water to help heal from injuries suffered during World War II. Well, it's the baths that brought the baseball players in because, you know, it's at the beginning of the season, they're a bit out of shape. The property is big. Vic explained that it once had a restaurant, a beauty shop, a Greyhound bus stop, and even a post office. Should we go see the baths? Absolutely. Let's go. Hot spring water no longer flows when Vic turns the handle to one of the faucets. But the Giants, now of San Francisco, are still in the Cactus League. Today they play in Scottsdale. Here are my seats. Right here. Is this close enough for you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. The grounds crew work on the field as Jim Bruner shows me where he sits, right behind the visitor's dugout in Scottsdale Stadium. He's had Cactus League season tickets since the 1970s. There's no way you're going to get me out of Arizona during the month of March. <laughs> this year got cut short. The pandemic sliced nearly two weeks off the schedule. I couldn't believe it. You know, how do you cancel Major League Baseball? How do you can't spring training? Yes, you know, that's a part of the DNA of this community. About 30 years ago, the community could have lost this part of its genetic code. Jim is one of the leaders who worked to keep it. Spring training was designed to bring people into the community to fill up the resorts and the hotels and so forth. It was not designed as a moneymaker per se. Jim served on the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors in the late 80s and early 90s. He, another supervisor, and Senator John McCain were called by a Giants co-owner to meet with the baseball commissioner at the Scottsdale Plaza Resort. And the theme of the meeting that we had was very cordial but very direct. The commissioner told them that teams liked training in Arizona, but the facilities were in terrible shape. He also said that the baseball owners did not have money for ballpark renovations. If Cactus League teams were to stay, private investors or local government would have to pay to keep them here. Well, that was kind of a wake-up call, if, if you will. The Arizona legislature heard it too. Jim said a bill was passed that gave county officials power to charge a rental car tax. The money raised was for fixing or building Cactus League parks. Around the same time, a second problem surfaced. The Seattle Mariners got forced out of Tempe Diablo Stadium, and the San Diego Padres wanted to leave Yuma. Both general managers sent Jim letters saying if their teams couldn't train here, they'd seek other options. Other options was a code word for moving to Florida. Florida is spring training's other home, and if the Mariners and Padres moved there, Arizona wouldn't have enough teams left to keep the Cactus League going. Peoria's mayor put forward a new idea to avoid this. Why not build a ballpark to house them both? I will admit I have some concern whether Peoria was big enough and actually strong enough to do it. Rental car tax money could only be used to pay for most of a new ballpark, so Peoria had to come up with the rest. The idea of a shared facility had not yet been tried here or in Florida, but the Peoria Sports Complex was built, and the Mariners and Padres are still there. Jim credits former Peoria mayor Ken Forge for helping save the Cactus League. Hey Matt, I, I don't think in our wildest dreams we would have thought when we started this, you know, some years ago we'd have half of all Major League teams do the spring training and everything. Our goal was just to, number one, stabilize and save the Cactus League. The size of the Cactus League has more than doubled since the baseball commissioner warned Jim that Metro Phoenix could lose spring training. 
Much of the growth came from three more two-team ballparks that went up in West Valley cities during the 2000s. They were paid for differently, which I'll explain more in another chapter. Scottsdale Stadium is the only spring training venue located downtown. It gets enveloped in a festive atmosphere that Jim loves. Every year he looks forward to seeing friends he's made from places like Austin and San Francisco. And people from out of state, they plan their vacations to come to Scottsdale or any of the cities in the Catches League. Uh, during spring break, bring their kids here. Uh, life just doesn't get any better. Arizona's first survey point is deep in the Southwest Valley on top of Monument Hill. Look north from there and you'll see where the Gila and Salt Rivers meet. Then look west and you'll see the sprawling Phoenix Raceway, which first opened in the 1960s. Steve McQueen won a race there in 1970. Today the track is owned by NASCAR, which chose it to host Championship Weekend in November, the next local sports mega event. Mike McComb is a retired Tempe firefighter. He lived at the track when its future was in doubt. Well, we can't shake hands, so I'll just give you the, yeah, right. give you the battle, Matt. I'll, uh, I'll follow you guys. I think only the service elevator is working right now. Okay. On the elevator, NASCAR's Rodney Scarce said Mike and I would talk in a suite that holds hundreds, unlike the private corporate ones occupied by the highest rollers. Curve. It's Dosaki's Curve. So it's an all-you-can-eat drink. Uh, weekend-long suite, so it's huge, it's pretty nice. Very cool. Yeah. Rodney leads us to a long, air-conditioned room with seats flanked by wet bars and buffet tables. Through the floor-to-ceiling glass sprawls the entire racetrack, which Mike hasn't seen in almost 20 years. Here, Rodney would tell us that Phoenix Raceway now ranks with Daytona International Speedway as a crown jewel of NASCAR. Right here you have a Mike's Hard Lemonade stand in the middle, right mm -hmm. below the scoring tower. Um, over here is the uh, Miller Lite Beer Garden. And These are parts there, of the infield designed to put today's race fans top on top of the, the action. Garages. That's the Porter Cool Chill Zone. And oh, then okay. right here in the front, smack dab in the center, is Gatorade Victory Lane. Corporate sponsorship covering nearly every visible inch of a sports venue wasn't a thing in the 1980s when Mike became the track's facilities coordinator. This was four owners ago, and race fans watched the action from wooden grandstands. So you'd always have wooden planks or seats breaking, so you're running up there fixing stuff, pulling snakes out of turn four or something like that. Pulling snakes so, out of turn four? Oh, the rattlesnakes are out here all the time. Turn four was notorious for this, Mike says, especially in the springtime, when the desert started to warm up. And uh, you just have to go through a snake pole and pull them out, take them out in the desert and, and drop them off. But Word of mouth about Mike's handyman business had landed him a tryout to replace a retiring track supervisor. Then he was asked to live on the property and take care of it. They gave me, it was just a trailer, it was a double wide trailer in the parking lot, literally in the gravel parking lot, and they gave me a little truck to drive. The place was isolated. People shot their guns in the river bottom, and a bullet once went through the double wide at eye level. But the job put Mike on a path to later help plan and run Tempe's biggest events, like Super Bowl Thirty. It's also how he met his wife. She was a ticket manager and the daughter of a Hall of Fame driver. On his 30th birthday, she teased that he'd grown too old to ask her out. Mike got the hint. They fell in love and got married. My son was conceived in one of the suites. I'm not sure which one, but he was. <laughs> The building Mike mentioned no longer exists. It was torn down and replaced by the one where we sat talking. Mike took out some old pictures I asked him to bring and remembered a visit to Pit Row with his son. It's like him and Kenny Schrader just hanging out, you know what I mean? There's him and Mario. As in Mario Andretti. 
Ricky Rudd. Bubba loved Ricky Rudd, my son. And Ricky, you know, was really cool to him, gave him some goggles. Just, just, but I'm just saying, these guys were really incredible people. And uh, he, uh, this is Kyle Petty right there. Kyle would let my son sit on his lap while he was timing the other cars, trying to get their lap times. Kyle Petty is the son of Richard Petty, NASCAR royalty known simply as the King. But when Mike first started at the raceway, much of what he had to maintain was still original. The track itself was usable, but keeping it that way required a yearly process of bending coffee cans into spouts and filling all of the cracks. And then somebody would come along and squeegee it completely flat because you couldn't have any ridges. Not doing this job right would put race car drivers in danger. So it was very tedious, back-breaking, hot-ass work because it was summertime. A new owner took over in 1985 and agreed to resurface the track as part of the deal. Well, my name is Buddy Job. Uh, my legal name is Emmett Sales Job Jr. Buddy Job had an East Valley farming operation that stretched from Chandler almost to Florence. A search for real estate investments led him to the West Valley, and he bought the property because testing deals with car makers like Porsche meant he'd make money. But the Indy car race the track hosted had been taken away. The driving surface was the reason given. The track was grown up. I mean, you could barely see it in tumbleweeds. Buddy had the track resurfaced, which won back the IndyCar race. Then Buddy started going to NASCAR races, pressing the flesh and talking up his own track. He got a sit-down with Bill France Jr., the head of NASCAR. Buddy's pitch was two-pronged. Coming to Metro Phoenix would expand NASCAR's presence out west, and stock cars could race in Arizona in the late fall and early spring, right when the weather was bad in NASCAR Heartland, the southeast. So he rolled his eyes a little bit, and I said, well... The NASCAR executive, known to Buddy as direct and to the point, told him that NASCAR already had a full schedule, and the chances for coming to Metro Phoenix were next to none. I said, well, Mr. France, I said, well, what, what do you think we got uh, one chance in, a, in 10 of getting a, uh, getting a NASCAR cup race? That's, that's a big one. He says, one in 10, he, he kind of laughed, and he shook his head, no, no, no. One. I said, well, how about... How about one in a hundred? No, 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 no chance. Buddy kept raising the odds until the executive finally smiled and agreed the Phoenix track had a one in a million chance to host a NASCAR Cup race someday. So I stood up and I shook his hand. I says, really good talking to you, Mr. France. I says, we've still got a chance. It became a running joke every time Buddy saw Bill France Jr., who did end up needing a new venue to keep NASCAR's presence in the West. Buddy was summoned to headquarters in Daytona for a meeting with top NASCAR executives. So we sit there and talked and talked and talked, and they had a big overhead map, and they were looking at it, and they were asking me questions. And Lunchtime came, and the meeting broke. Confused, Buddy went to a cafe to eat with Les Richter, a former star pro football player who had a second career in sports as a NASCAR vice president. I'm on the edge of my chair, kind of rocking back and forth, kind of trying to figure out what was going on. Buddy asked Les, better known as Coach, what had just happened. Coach said the meeting was to come up with a press release saying that Phoenix would host a NASCAR race. Buddy lay back in the booth and took a deep breath. He started laughing. He says, well, didn't you have it figured out by now? And I says, well, I'm a little slow. 
Buddy had gotten used to signing long, detailed contracts with the IndyCar Racing Authority, but that's not what happened with NASCAR. It was totally handshake. My, my word is my bond. NASCAR's official announcement came months after lightning started a fire that burned most of the Phoenix racetrack's grandstand. Buddy built a new one that could hold more fans. About a month before the 1988 NASCAR race, work was finished on a three-story luxury suite building, which also had a new apartment for Mike McComb. Then I thought, okay, I'm here for the long term. You know, this place is going to take off. NASCAR doubled the number of yearly races in Phoenix in 2005. By then, Buddy had sold the track to International Speedway Corporation, which was recently bought by NASCAR. From what it was to what it is now, I couldn't have imagined it would be this big. Big enough to host NASCAR's championship weekend. Race officials recently announced that they will have fans in November, just not as many. Mike's not sure what that will be like, given that some fans normally start showing up weeks before a race. They got music, they got festivities, they've got a grocery store. It's its, its own little city, and it's, it's an experience like no other. In 1970, Arizona State University played football in the Western Athletic Conference. The Sun Devils didn't lose a single game that year, but they weren't invited to a bowl game. Snubs like this were one of the driving forces that led nine Arizonans to start their own bowl. It kicked off in 1971, and ASU won the game. Carl Eller, who died last year, was one of the founders. Uh, it took a lot of effort from everybody's part, a lot of politics, a lot of schmoozing people and trying to get them into the thing. And finally we ended up uh, getting the bowl game, and then we had a contest to name the bowl, and it ended up being the Fiesta Bowl. In the 1970s, the game usually featured an Arizona school and was played on or around Christmas Day. 1981 marked the move to a New Year's game, which was home to iconic bowls like the Rose, Orange, Cotton, and Sugar. Bill Shover, another Fiesta Bowl founder, remembered that the decision to turn into a big-time bowl game came down to one vote. It was a heck of a risk because we were still out pleading with people to come because our money wasn't large, didn't have a big network contract. He traveled all over the country to network with the top college football programs. We, we went to games when we didn't have to be there. I sat in snowstorms in, in Notre Dame. Had no chance to get Notre Dame, but we knew someday we'd get them. Someday was 1989. The Irish won the second college football national championship game played locally. A few years earlier, the Fiesta had invented a new revenue source and became the first college postseason bowl to add a corporate sponsor to its name. A huge TV audience watched the Sunkissed Fiesta Bowl in 1987, when organizers put together a title game matchup that other bowls could not. Early on, uh, our independence really provided us with a lot of flexibility. Patrick Barkley is the Fiesta Bowl's current chairman. The focus has always been our, on hospitality. We've really made that our hallmark. Meaning coaches and teams playing in the game get a big welcome. Mike Neely is executive director of the Fiesta Bowl. From the day they landed, we met them uh, with a mariachi band and welcomed them to Arizona as, as a community. The red carpet treatment continues as bowl committee members embed with the teams, ride on their bus, and stay in the same resort. 
Patrick started as a volunteer in 1998, which was the first year of the Bowl Championship Series, an exclusive format that the Fiesta Bowl became part of by eclipsing the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. And to be in that rotation where you would host a national championship game uh, every, every fourth year was a huge, huge kudo for us. The 2003 title game hosted by the Fiesta Bowl was the last national championship played in Sun Devil Stadium. The Bowl moved west to Glendale after what is now State Farm Stadium opened in 2006, just in time for the Fiesta to hold another college championship. Mike described the crosstown move as emotional, but likely necessary to maintain elite bowl status. You need to generate elite revenue streams, and, and the new stadium allowed us to do that. The Fiesta Bowl could have lost the chance to host championship games because of a political campaign finance scandal that led to a million-dollar fine and a 2011 prison sentence for the Bowl's former chief executive. Still, when the college format changed yet again to a four-team playoff, the Fiesta was among an expanded group of Bowls that take turns hosting semifinal and title games. Mike started work for the Fiesta Bowl right before this change. And we are at the top pinnacle of the college football game. And, and those national championship games or those high profile football games and, the, and where Fiesta Bowl fit into, that was a big draw. But yeah, that television audience saw in the middle of winter for many people, this, this sunny, warm destination, number one. And then you had all these people that were following their teams that maybe came to Arizona for their first time A major college football bowl game, a racetrack, spring training baseball, and a golf tournament all helped make Metro Phoenix a haven for sports fans. In Chapter 2, I'll explain how the Valley became home to pro franchises from all the major sports, and how local leaders built two capitals for teams to play in, before COVID-19 emptied the seats and shut down the sports industry. For KJZZ Original Productions, I'm Matthew Casey. Once again, special thanks to Matthew Casey from KJZZ. We've put a link to his podcast series, Empty Seats, in our show notes. This episode was produced by me, Andrew Ramsamy. The Global Sport Matters podcast is a production of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Our manager of marketing and communications is Crisal Valencia. Our manager of events and programs is Kendall Jones. Our marketing and communications assistants are Julia O'Connell and Katie Cross. To stay up to date on the latest from the Global Sport Matters team, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at Global Sport MTRS. And be sure to sign up for our newsletter on our website by clicking the envelope icon at GlobalSportMatters.com. I'm Andrew Ramsamy. Until next time, stay well.